0: Go to
1: bluehost.com slash wondersweet.
0: During today's episode, I'm going to be telling you about and playing a clip from a new podcast I think you should check out. It's called Uneffing the Republic, but they don't say effing. So hear me out, mid-show when I brace you for what you shall hear from them. And now Welcome to today's episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the American Rescue Plan and discuss what it does, where it falls short, and whether it could signal the end of an era. Clips today are from The Bradcast, Democracy Now, The Tom Hartman Program, Off Kilter, The Majority Report, The Zero Hour, Uneffing the Republic, There Will Be Swearing, and Pitchfork Economics.
2: Ron Klain said, we want to move as fast as possible. We will hold our celebration of the signing on Friday as planned with congressional leaders. Presumably, that will only be Democratic congressional leaders since no Republicans in either chamber voted in favor of the bill despite some of them going on to Twitter on Wednesday to sing its praises.
3: Of course they did.
2: As if they had voted in favor of it. So don't be fooled. Zero, zero Republicans voted for what is now not just a stimulus bill, but a landmark recovery, relief and stimulus bill that is structured wildly differently from anything before it in modern times, pumping a huge amount of money where it's actually needed including mostly to the poor and the working class who have struggled the most over the past year, not to mention the past, oh, I don't know, four decades or so. The people who
4: actually build and make the country run.
2: This uh, nearly $2 trillion package uh, sees most of its funds go to the poor and the working class. And yes, it received zero votes from Republicans. That by way of contrast with the Republican tax cuts from 2017 that cost the same nearly $2 trillion with 65% of the benefits from that bill going to the wealthiest, the top 1% of the nation. And that $2 trillion bill was voted for by every Republican in both houses, which I hope gives you an unvarnished, nonpartisan Clear picture of the priorities of each of the two major parties, money, child support, health care expansion, unemployment payments meant to help those most in in need in the country, such as the middle class and the working poor that was opposed by every single Republican money and long term tax cuts for the wealthy and for corporations at a time when profits for those same people were never higher. Uh, before the bill was passed, was supported at the time in those tax cuts by every single Republican. Got that? And that is not a partisan statement. This is just an historical fact that I want to point out because I want you to keep keep this in mind and share it with your friends and family when the next elections come around in less than two years and you don't have to be a partisan to do so to share these actual facts of who voted for what and who voted against what. Now, in fact, while only time will tell, uh, what I've come to learn about Joe Biden and the Democrats' $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan is that it is so radically different from how we have operated in recent decades with these sorts of bills as far as how the benefits are distributed to the American people that we may look back on this day. I know, I know I'm going out on a limb here, Desi Doyen, I'm making another prediction, but I think we may look back on this day and see this day as the official end of the Reagan era. Really? I I don't know, but you know, that's how different this, uh, I believe anyway, that this package is. And by the way, It's just one of the reasons that, yes, every Republican voted against it. If Democrats can keep this up, and of course that remains a big if, they are Democrats after all. And
4: it does rely on
2: voters. uh, This could be a a sea change, really, in the country for a generation of Americans, like myself, by the way, who were largely brought up uh, in in a nation under the notion that the, the federal government does next to nothing other than make life easier for rich people and for corporations. That has pretty much been uh, what I have seen for the bulk of my life, certainly the bulk of my adult life. And now if that begins to change, if people across the country, yes, including Republicans, yes, including Trump Republicans, if they start to see, well, $1,400 checks, as they will, and they start seeing monthly checks, For children, up to $3,600 annually for each child. When they continue to see an extra $300 on top of their state unemployment checks, when they realize that their monthly insurance premiums, health insurance premiums, could be going down in some cases to zero, all thanks to this bill, when they begin to see an influx of cash to their children's schools, to make improvements, to make them easier to reopen safely. Well, it is going to be very hard for Republicans to continue their claims that, oh, Democrats are terrible. These guys are horrible, radical. You hate them. They're socialists. All of that socialism needs to stop. That American parents... Really, in truth, they don't want that $300 or $600 or $900 monthly child tax credit checks coming into their houses anymore. They just don't want that. Good luck with that argument, Republicans. Good luck telling your constituents in 2022 why all of this must be stopped immediately and why their insurance premiums need to go up before the next midterm elections. I mean, to me... This seems like an astounding act of political malpractice, in fact, by the Republicans. But, you know, I'm not a political insider. Certainly, I'm not a Republican political insider. So I certainly can't even begin to guess what they may be thinking with what seems an historic act of political miscalculation on their parts. Again, time will tell. But good luck telling 76% of the nation, which supports this bill right now, including 60% of Republican voters, good luck telling them why you voted against it and how it is that you want to end the improvements that this measure, the American Rescue Plan, makes in the lives of the vast majority of the country, including, yes, Republican voters.
5: Well, Stephanie Kelton, could you uh, be a little more specific in terms especially of the uh, what has to be the most uh, the newest part and the and the potentially most far reaching part is this child tax credit and explain how it would work? Because uh, uh, there had been a child tax credit passed in December in the the last stimulus package, but this would extend it for another year uh, throughout 2021 as a monthly payment. Per child to uh, families in America. It, explain the mechanics, and also it's only for th- last year and this year. What about the future?
6: Yeah, you're right. So this is a temporary expansion and an increase as well. And so what many families are going to see is a is a check show up in the mail, and uh, for each child, you're on average people would be looking at something like three hundred dollars per child per month. It's a significant um, increase over what was done in the past, which was $200. Um, and, and you're right to point out that it's temporary. And Democrats definitely hope uh, that it will not remain temporary, that this is something that they can move forward to make permanent in the years to come. Because, you know, one, a lot of countries have uh, programs like this. They have a child dividend. They provide monthly support for families with certain income levels. And and it's pretty generous. Uh, most families will, in fact, benefit from this. So this is something other wealthy countries have done for a very long time. Uh, the U.S. has been a laggard in this respect. And so we're beginning to catch up with many other wealthy countries around the world. Sending direct payment uh, to families with children allows them to, you know, cover child expenses, which, of course, are incredibly high in this
7: country. If you can talk more about the significant shift of what this means for the American people. And even though the Republicans aren't joining in and supporting this, there's actually little fundamental criticism of this shift, the whole idea of a kind of European socialism that's very well accepted uh, throughout Western Europe, and the idea that—I um, mean, you have parents of 93 percent of American children, 69 million people will be getting monthly checks, um, you know, really particularly will impact um, the poorest children, children of color, though it will help most everyone in the country. And whether you think this can continue, which, of course, is the fundamental hope of many, not just a bailout this year, but a new model for guaranteed income, a floor for families in this country.
6: I think so, Amy. I mean, it would be it it, in some sense, you know, it's it would be cruel to demonstrate that the federal government has the capacity with one piece of legislation to change the lives of tens of millions of Americans to just lift half of all the kids in this country who are today living in poverty will not be living in poverty in the in, in the coming weeks and months because of this piece of legislation. Now, so many of the provisions that we've been talking about are temporary, and that means that when they expire, if they are allowed to expire, those very same families, many of them will fall back into poverty. So what the government is doing with this bill is demonstrating that, in a sense, poverty is a policy choice. And that Congress can step up and change that with a piece of legislation, with a further commitment, with a doubling down on some of these programs that make them permanent and that demonstrate the government is committed not just to alleviating strain in a time of crisis, but to fundamentally eradicating poverty in this country.
1: We are at the end of an era. Peter Turchin published a really provocative piece about a decade ago, 10 years ago, in Nature magazine. And in that piece, he pointed out that politics tends to go in roughly 50-year cycles. Sometimes they're as short as 40 years. Sometimes they go as long as 60 years. But typically, the sweet spot is 50 years. And he pointed out that 1971. Well, he didn't. He didn't point it out. He just referenced that period of time. I pointed out in my piece over at HartmanReport.com that 1971 was when the Powell memo was you know written it was when the entire right mobilized within 4 or 5 years of that you had the Federalist Society created the the Heritage Foundation created um the Charles Koch Foundation became the Cato Institute um you had all you, state policy networks started growing in every single state um re, we now have a billionaire owned and driven political infrastructure with all of these uh, groups that is larger than the Republican Party itself so I had a great conversation last night with Dino Badala on his show here on SiriusXM. Uh, and, 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 and we were, you know, talking about this and just laying this out, you know, like, why do Republicans, for example, the tax cut that Trump pushed through back in, uh, in uh, 2017 had 25% approval among the American public, 25% according to Quinnipiac. This and every Republican voted for it. This uh, American Relief Act, uh, which is what uh, Biden is calling it now, uh, has 65 percent approval, more or less, across the board. And even a majority of Republicans approve of it. It depends on which study you're looking at and when when it was done, because Fox News has been pounding on it how horrible it is for you know a couple of weeks now. So, you know, they are capable of shifting opinions. But the bottom line is it's very, very popular, and yet every Republican voted against it. And you ask why? Well, because it's not the Republicans who control the Republican Party. It's a handful of 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 right-wing, cranky right-wing billionaires who put their You know who use their money to basically buy politics, and and I think their day has come to an end. I think this fifty year cycle, since nineteen seventy one to twenty twenty one that's fifty years, or from Reagan to today that's forty years. Reagan became president in January of uh, of nineteen eighty one, and and if you look at those. Cycles, I think that the, you know, I'm going out on a limb here, but I really believe that you and I will be having this conversation a year, two years, three years, certainly four or five years down the road, looking back and saying the American Recovery Act and Joe Biden's speech. And and I And I get it. Joe Biden is no Bernie Sanders. But nonetheless, we are going to be looking back at this moment and saying the American Recovery Act and Joe Biden's speech marked the beginning of the turn. The beginning of the end of the era of Reaganomics.
2: Clinton economic advisor Larry Summers, he notes, was particularly incoherent. Uh, He says that uh, Summers didn't mind a lot of spending. It's just that it should be channeled to public investment, not just giving away a bunch of money. Dan says this is critically wrong on a number of levels, but the biggest is that the ARP, the American Rescue Plan, does, in fact, bring lasting public investment, which makes it a huge one-year investment bill as well as everything else. Uh, much of these investments uh, prevent deterioration, but the, he says a smaller hole to drag out of uh, will be created in the future, and it certainly helps. Some of the, these investments will create pockets of durability that will be remembered as part of the ARP. That's especially true, he notes, if key investments are eventually made permanent. He goes on to cite just some of those investments in this sweeping bill that have not yet received as much attention, for example, as the one-time $1,400 individual checks, which are coming soon. He says, let's start with the health insurance, uh, the health infrastructure investments. He says there's a section on providing medical supplies and personnel for rural health care providers, something that will be difficult to dislodge post-pandemic, he says there's 7.6 billion dollars for state and local health department workers and another 7.6 billion for community health centers which provide basic care in poor communities. For context, he notes Bernie Sanders got 11 billion for community health centers in the Affordable Care Act, but that 11 billion dollars was to be spent over 5 years, Nonetheless it made a significant difference this bill by contrast this is 7.6 billion in investments in one single year wow then there's the school funding 128 billion dollars that's dedicated to K through 12 which will deliver more to the poorest schools up to $8000 per student in low income districts like Cleveland more per student, Uh, meaning that money can be used to make long-term investments in schools like uh, improving ventilation, which can serve as both pandemic preparedness and better learning environments. These have proven to make a difference in the classroom, he notes, the $39 billion in child care grants. Can, and that's separate, by the way, from the uh, from the $300 monthly checks that uh, folks will be getting per child. $39 billion in child care grants can rebuild care infrastructure, which is desperately needed. Thought about as a one-year investment, it's absolutely enormous $39 billion. There's also $7 billion emergency connectivity fund for remote learning, which he says comes a bit late, but can help to provide lasting broadband infrastructure. There's also 30 more than 30 billion for public transit, which will go toward arresting the sector wide crisis for low pandemic ridership on public transit which he says easily could have spiraled into permanent cutbacks to those public transit systems. This will uh, sustain transit budgets until 2023 in some areas. And I believe, Desi Doyen, uh, you will discuss that a bit more, uh, another aspect of the ARP in your Green News report yes. a little bit later today. All of this is on top of the $350 billion investment in state and local governments, which, thanks to a last-minute change can go towards service improvements in things like water and sewage and broadband, $350 billion. That's some real money. Some of this money will pour into uh, lasting investments and upgrades in key systems around the country. Remember how, you know, we've, uh, you know, I I remember going to uh, uh, national parks and state parks and stuff and seeing stuff that was built after the Depression or during the Depression. In a uh, jobs by program. FDR. Yes. Yeah. We could be looking at investments like that, that decades down the road, we're looking back at the ARP and the infrastructure improvements that it has made. Uh, similar, similarly, he notes the $31 billion for, uh, for tribal governments, the largest investment in those communities in a very long time. That will include lasting infrastructure, some of it earmarked for housing. And when you have legislation that for one year would reduce poverty from almost 14% down to uh, about 9% and cut child poverty by more than half, he notes you are freeing people from many day-to-day stresses and putting them in position to succeed. This is the largest anti-poverty bill in decades.
3: You kind of have to talk about both when you, when you talk about um, income boosting provisions within the tax code that reach lower and moderate income families and and workers. In the case of the EITC, one of the biggest gaps over the years that advocates have been uh, ringing the alarm bells about um, and, and pointing to in terms of the agenda to to um, to eliminate poverty in this country is that it it has conti- it has really left behind workers who don't have dependent kids. So here we've been talking about the child tax credit, which is for families with kids, but for folks who who are struggling um, with low wages but don't have uh, uh, dependent children, the federal government um, taxes them deeper into poverty. And in fact, that's the only group that is taxed deeper or into poverty or or into poverty by the federal government um, of of all workers. Um, This law also actually starts to fix that as well.
4: Yeah, that's right. So the uh, the earned income tax credit for workers uh, without children um, is basically tripled. So the the maximum credit had been five hundred forty three dollars, which is very small. I mean, compared to the uh, families with children would get, you know, two thousand, three thousand, sometimes four thousand dollars. So it's it was only uh, about Five hundred dollars, and this bill basically triples that to fifteen hundred dollars. And like you said, you know the uh, family, uh, so-called childless workers are the only group that are uh, taxed further into poverty by the by the federal income tax. Um, And I'd also say, you know, a lot of these, um, a lot of the people who are considered, you know, not to have children for the earned income tax credit are actually. Um, helping support children, it's just that, that you know it's if they don't they don't have um, children that they don't have uh, in their home more you know most of the time or don't have custody over. Um, so a lot of them are actually parents.
3: There's another tax credit as well that that I sort of feel like is the the sibling of the the child tax credit and the EITC that gets even even less attention and, and visibility sometimes than than those two do, and that's the child and dependent care credit, um, which which has a lot to do with with helping families afford um, child care and, and dependent care. Um, that that gets some love in this law as well.
4: Yeah, it does. And I think it's really one of the overlooked major uh expansions of of tax credits in the law. Um so uh you know basically the the child and dependent care tax credit. So this is you know, separate from the child tax credit. Um but it's a tax credit for uh child care expenses for people who um need child care to go to work. Um and it it was sort of the just the m- most weirdly designed tax credit where Um, it it was totally non-refundable so the people who uh, with low incomes got absolutely nothing but then once you got sort of into the middle class it phased down so quickly that people got only like at most a very small benefit from it. Um, So it was this kind of weird thing in the tax code that didn't really benefit anybody that much um and so this is a major expansion and and basically what it does is um for low and middle income families it it, it um creates a fully refundable tax credit uh that's essentially going to cover half of uh, a family's child care expenses um up to if you have two kids up to $16,000 a year so potentially people can get a tax credit of um $8,000 uh, if they have $16,000 of uh, child care expenses. So, uh, so it's, you know, it's just sort of a huge step forward in helping people afford child care
3: and obviously part part and parcel um of this this law is also an historic investment in in uh in child care uh i believe 40 billion is is the number that that ended up making it in uh, not not nearly every dollar that we need in in terms of child care investment right now to catch up with where we we need to be um but but huge 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 steps in in the right direction um there's also and this is the final thing we'll put on the table before we we switch gears a little bit there's also a piece in this law that has got- Almost no attention, relatively speaking, and, and certainly compared to, say, the child tax credit expansion or the the direct payments or the unemployment insurance. And that has to do with healthcare premiums, um, particularly for folks who have lost their jobs during the pandemic. Mm-hmm.
4: So, um, yeah, so you know, uh, Cobra healthcare coverage, right? You can, if you lose your job, you can stay on a plan, but you really have to pay for it um, on, on your own. And there had been some some help. Um, from from previous bills, but um, with this bill is, it it uh, covers hundred percent of Cobra premiums. So if somebody loses their job, they, they can essentially stay on, um, and the government's going to uh, pick up the cost of the of the premium, which I think is you know obviously crucial for people who lose their jobs and lose their health insurance uh, with it. Um, and then also just for for there, you know there's twelve million people who get health insurance. Through the uh, marketplaces that were established by Obamacare, um, and this uh, the, the rescue plan um, lowers the premium substantially for for people who get healthcare on those marketplaces.
0: There's a new show being produced by good friends and supporters of ours called Unking the Republic, and as summarized by their title, it's pretty much the chocolate and peanut butter of politics for people who like both cogent, thoughtful analysis of the state of the nation and also swearing. Two great styles of rhetoric that sound great together. So if you haven't had a chance to check out Unfucking the Republic yet, today is your big day because I finally have a clip for you. Their most recent episode breaks down not only this recent recovery package, but also the history and legacy of recent stimulus packages. So you're going to be hearing the end of that episode, but missing out on all the context of the past decade that they lay out, so you're going to want to check that out. To give you a sense of what I mean about the style of the show, in the clip I'm going to play, it's less than six minutes long, but they managed to squeeze in nine f**ks uttered. But they also mention... Modern monetary theory, inflation, pent-up demand, inventory replenishment, early cycle recovery, money supply, Keynes, Friedman, boom and bust market cycles, structural imbalance, and for a touch of additional class and flourish, he ends with "endeth," because hey, oh, uh, we're being fucking classy over here with "endeth." It's old-timey and sht. You know, that's how you can tell it's classy. Sorry, he doesn't really sound like that, um, but he can. Just just check out his episode he did on Cuomo. Uh, so, so look forward to that as the last clip of the day today. But actually, let me pause this ad for a moment. Now, this is just my commentary. I know what you're thinking. This seems pretty ethically dubious for a political curation podcast to be curating content from an advertiser. You know, have we crossed over from advertiser to advertorial you ask Uh, well here's what i tell myself so that i can sleep at night these ads are paid but the placement of the clip in the show that's earned because it is genuinely good enough in my estimation to be in the show now if you hear the clip and you think it's not up to our usual editorial standards then let me know and i'll take that under advisement As for being ethically dubious, uh, yeah, sure, I, I buy that, actually. We don't have a large enough staff to even dream of creating a firewall between ad sales and editorial because it's all just me. But if you can afford a membership but haven't bought one, then you have a front row seat to the forces of capitalism that put people like me into uncomfortable and ethically dubious situations in an attempt to raise the funds necessary to produce a high-quality show that's also available for free. Okay, okay, back to the ad. So, whether because it's a show that's worth your time, which it is, or because you want to support the people supporting Best of the Left, check out Unfucking the Republic wherever you get your podcast by searching for UNFTR or by clicking through on the link in our show notes.
7: I mean, the child tax credit um, on its surface might look like just another tweak to the tax code, but it defines a profound shift in how we view society uh, confronting poverty, much like the New Deal's creation of Social Security and what that did for the elderly. Could this continue?
8: I believe it can. I mean, when you think about it, uh, children don't choose their parents. And if there is any concern about the future of the country, you want to make sure that the children, no matter who their parents are, uh, can live up to their potential. One of the things that I pointed out in my research is that the American dream uh, is really a myth. The life prospects of a young American are more dependent on the income and uh, education of his parents than in almost any other advanced country. So it's absolutely the opposite of the way we think about ourselves. And so this is a transformation it says we are actually going to live up, try to live up to our aspirations,
7: You have also the $5 billion uh, for farmers of color, for black farmers, um, in debt relief. Um, The Republicans are trying to make this the kind of poster child example of, well, they're talking about reparations. But how key is this, Professor Stiglitz?
8: Well, this addresses a a kind of legacy of discrimination that we've had, Uh, you know— Uh, when you've had a legacy of discrimination, uh, you have to undo it. It's it's not a question of reparations, although I think uh, there's a strong argument that can be made for reparations. But just for our society to go forward with a modicum of uh, equality is going to necessitate uh, dealing with some of the consequences of the discrimination of the past.
7: Is this the end of trickle-down economics?
8: I hope so. You know, I hope we've learned that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that the 2017 bill of Trump was uh, hopefully the last gasp of trickle-down economics. The theory was giving all that money to the corporations and the billionaires would lead to sustained economic growth from which everyone would benefit. Uh, what we saw in that bill was that the money overwhelmingly went to share buybacks, dividends. Uh, very little of it trickled down to ordinary workers. That was a a, a real demonstration that trickle down economics didn't work. And uh, this is uh, the antithesis of what Trump did. Uh, it's building up the economy uh, from the middle and the bottom.
0: put this into context it 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 implies at the very least or is maybe explicit that there is a fundamental shift i mean people are talking about this as the end of the the reagan era of thinking how durable is that are they going to be at the end like well we're past covid uh the economy is booming I, i'm just hypothetical the economy is booming we don't need to do these things anymore or do we learn the lesson that, Hey, this actually, the economy is booming because we did this, uh, this is making people suffer left. Like that's a good thing. We should not change that.
5: It's entirely based on what happens within the next year, uh, whether or not we carry this forward and, and make this, make these things permanent features of our safety net or not, uh, you know, there's uh, people like to quote this thing that uh, Biden said, I think, at a fundraiser uh, where he said, uh, uh, you know, nothing will fundamentally change. So in this bill, something did, in fact, fundamentally change. And it was this change in philosophy, this change in, in what the the public needs are. But it's only a temporary shift and and it won't be a fundamental shift. Until uh, we we make that decision. Now, I I think the administration believes that they have a really good argument to make once they have now given uh, the the families this advanceable support. So instead of waiting for their taxes, they get it every month. The Child tax credit existed. Right. It was a two thousand dollar per child tax credit. But now. It's, uh, first of all, available up to uh, age 18. Second of all, uh, under six, it's you get more money for those, those, those individuals. And third of all, it's advanceable. So you get a monthly check rather than having to wait once a year in your taxes. Uh, so once people are getting that check, it's going to be the, – the, the theory is it's going to be very hard for the political system to say – you're not getting that check anymore. It's an effective tax increase. I mean, because this is the child tax credit, Republicans would have to be increasing taxes on, on working families, on, on all families in America. Uh, 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 that, that's, the theory is that's going to be very difficult to take away from people. And the same thing for the uh, the, the new Affordable Care Act subsidies, which the, the administration absolutely wants to make permanent in theory that makes sense in practice it's very easy to not pass a bill right i mean it's to it's 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 very easy to just continue gridlock on the course that it's on it is not it is not sort of preordained let's say that just because not doing something will cause a bad action doesn't mean that that, that that bad action won't take place. Uh, so I think it's going to be a difficult fight. Now, are they going to use reconciliation to make permanent the child tax credit or these subsidies? You can do that as long as you pay for it. So they they chose not to pay really for much of anything in this bill. There are there are a few minor tax increases in this bill on uh, wealthy families, uh, mostly because. They put a cap. They said it's, this is a 1.9 trillion dollar budget reconciliation. and They actually went over that cap, so they had to do a little bit of, uh, of 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 tax increases, revenue increases to to offset that. But if you offset the whole cost, then yes, you can make this permanent in reconciliation. But you have to choose what those what those offsets would be. Uh, and I, while it's it's simple in theory, getting every member of the Democratic Senate caucus on board for a specific set of tax increases that would fund this specific thing because uh there's this this idea out there that these 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 offsets are finite, right? And and I I don't want to use them on that. I want to use them on climate or I want to use them on education or I want to use them on healthcare. I don't want to use it on on this child th- So I think that's going to be where some of the difficulty lies here, is is finding a mix of these particular offsets. I mean, everybody, it seems, in the Democratic caucus wants to continue this child tax credit program. Uh, There are differences of opinion as to how you administer it. But the question is going to be, are you going to be able to find the offsets and actually get it done?
9: One of the things that I keep hearing, and it's a quote from, I believe, National Tax Center or something like this, did the calculation that people in the lowest quintile of income, households in the lowest quintile in the United States, if they have three children, will see out of this bill a 20% uh, increase in income, for uh, temporarily, which gets left off a lot of times, but just for one year, we'll see a 20% increase in income and this has been a big part of the celebration of the bill it's been repeated constantly and as i mentioned on um, social media the by the same center's calculations it's before the pandemic uh the lowest quintile the average income was 13,000 something so what you're celebrating is that a, a households 20 per, uh, 20% of the households in this country uh, some of whom have three children, are trying to get by on less than $14,000, and you're going to give them a 20% boost uh, one time. But it, the, the quote that came to mind for me was that of that famous democratic socialist Martin Luther King Jr., who said, uh, you know, true compassion is not flinging coins to beggars, but recognizing the ed- edifices that make it necessary to beg in the first place. Uh, am I being unfair here? Because it seems to me next year these people are going to be back at 13,005 or whatever, uh, trying to raise three kids. And maybe they'll be up to 15 if we can keep some of these provisions. But that, to me, reflects a horrible condition that we are permitting and even accepting by celebrating this,
10: that one in five households will live this way. Yeah, it's unbelievable because if 14,000 is what we're talking about for the bottom quintile and they get improved by 20%, that's $2,800. Most of those people could not possibly change the basic conditions of their life with $2,800. And everybody in America who pays any attention to their finances knows that. The the level of self-delusion You have to be normally engaged in to get really excited that you're giving a family that lives on $14,000, $2,800 more, let's assume, and that's the big promise. I'm not sure many of them will even get it, but let's assume they do. That's not going to change anything, but they're going to be as unable to send their kid to college as they always were. They are going to be as unable to live the so-called American dream as they always were. The gap between how they live and how rich people live will be As jarringly immense after this as it was before. Again, you're not changing this country's problem. The inequality has gotten much worse over the last 50 years. Every statistic shows it. We've had a massive redistribution of wealth from the bottom and the middle to the top. All this bill does is make a very modest. Return to some of the most grievously hurt in the last 50 years. That's all. It isn't going to change anything. Or to, again, if I'm quoting Nancy Pelosi correctly, this is not transforming anything. And the idea that the poor of this country should fall all over themselves because you're giving them a one shot 20% boost which happened, by the way, at the same time that what you might have done is actually lift the horrific level of wages these people are required to live on from the $7.25 an hour federal minimum, one of the lowest in the world of, of industrial advanced countries, to $15 by 2025. You chose not to do that. It's as if you're saying... We're not going to do anything to change the basic horror that makes a CEO in this country currently earn roughly 300 times the median wage of the people he employs. You're not changing any of that. You're leaving that exactly the way it was, which was awful. And you're giving them a a one-shot stimulus. I like your image It's like, you know, that there have been serious heart problems for this patient. But instead of dealing with those in a comprehensive way, including the possibility of a transplant, you're just going to hit them with another electric shock, stimulate them as if you didn't know that all of the problems that come with people in a family trying to live on $14,000 a year in today's America, as if you didn't know what that meant. Look. Most of the people in Congress either are millionaires or close to it. And the simple understanding that those folks may very well have forgotten if they ever knew what it's like to live on $14,000 a year begins to make sense. Because if you don't ascribe it to their kind of not understanding, then you'd have to think that it is sheer evil expediency, pandering to the rich who support them with donations and let the rest of the country just shrink into the poverty-ridden back country uh, that we used to think we only see on National Geographic television shows.
0: This next clip has swears in it,
11: like a lot of them almost everyone knew that the cares act would be insufficient to drive home a full recovery and get many households back on their feet despite the fact that not a single fucking republican in the house voted for this plan they knew it was going to happen and had they held the presidency and the power in congress they would have done exactly the same thing so here we are in the midst of yet another historic measure that will send nearly $2 trillion more surging through the American economy in the form of municipal support, direct payments to families and individuals, extended unemployment benefits, and a host of other measures like support for public pensions and small businesses. Republicans dusted off their playbooks from pre-Trump days to argue that it would blow up the national debt. It will. It'll send money to people who don't necessarily need it. It will. And it will potentially overheat the economy and cause a surge in inflation. It might. Of course, when they were writing the checks, these weren't considerations. $2 in tax cuts to the wealthy blew up the national debt and sent money to people who absolutely didn't need it. In the aggregate between Fed intervention and the Trump stimulus, money flooded the system, causing the markets to rip like a rocket ship. And it brought inflation back in line with only normal expectations, not a total surge. So there are a couple things at play here. First off, neither Democrats nor Republicans managed to accomplish much for the poorest among us. Neither Democrats nor Republicans were able to see their way clear to raising the minimum wage or even having the fucking conversation. If you lost your employer-sponsored health insurance, you're still fucked. The only conclusion that has to be drawn is whether this final injection of cash into the system will overheat the economy. It's very likely we're going to do a deeper dive into modern monetary theory in the near future, so hang tight for that, because history is literally unfolding as we speak with respect to this incredibly important theory. But the odds are inflation will creep back as the vaccine takes hold and the economy reopens. The pent-up demand for travel and hospitality is enormous. Household savings in the upper middle class and wealthy Americans is at an all-time high. And in terms of manufacturing, inventories are still at a cycle low, which means we're not only going to be pressuring supply with new orders, but we're early cycle in a typical recovery that will see a huge spike in raw materials, manufacturing, and inventory replenishment. Because the velocity of money supply, essentially how much we've been able to spend in a lockdown economy, has been so low, it's offset the increase in money supply, which is historic. Do you know that more than 25% of money in circulation today was invented in 2020? It's never happened before. So the stage is set for a massive economic transformation over the next decade, and we'll finally be able to settle the Keynes versus Friedman debate on how best to operate a so called capitalist economy. And if you listen to our capitalism episode on Fuckers, you pretty much know where I land on this argument. And now for the real point of this entire episode. Finally, right? The United States seems to have lost the ability to govern. And it's given itself over completely to the whims of corporations that are designing every inch of our lives, our economy, our domestic and foreign policies, and ultimately our national priorities. In between busts in the boom and bust market cycles, we're only capable of tinkering around the edges. Despite massive public support, we don't even have the resolve to tackle minimum wage, curb homelessness, end mass incarceration, protect indigenous rights, create a proper pathway to citizenship, End our bloody foreign entanglements and unconstitutional interventions by way of airstrikes and drone strikes. Provide health care for everyone. Guarantee a dignified retirement. Ensure that no child goes hungry and the beat goes on. Basically everything that we talk about here on Unfucking the Republic. Now all we can do is just fuck things up and then send a whole bunch of money coursing through the system and hope that it fixes it. Trust me, as much as I believe wholeheartedly in the need for this stimulus, It'll be a pyrrhic victory if we don't fix the structural imbalance in our nation that has repressed and subjugated the poor and the working class. As we mentioned a couple of episodes prior, it begins with getting corporate money out of the system and instituting campaign finance reform. Otherwise, when things recover again this time, and they will for most of us, we'll soon forget that we have a country to run, issues to tackle, poor people to lift out of poverty, and a planet to save. Don't let these fuckers just tinker. And don't let them act like they're doing you a favor. They're like arsonists who set your house on fire and then run around back and spray it with your own garden hose and say, you're welcome. As Biden and company do their little victory lap, let them know you're not impressed. You want to impress us? End homelessness in the wealthiest nation in the world. Raise the fucking minimum wage. Let every person in prison on weed possession charges out now. Expunge their records and pay for their time behind bars. Find the parents of the kids who are stuck at the border. If the financial crisis and the pandemic have proven anything, it's that we can move mountains and print money in a crisis. So start treating human beings in crisis as the moral crisis that it is. And stop patting yourselves on the back for doing the minimum and giving us what's rightfully ours. COVID's not over, so wear a mask. There are no lizard people. And fuck Milton Friedman. Here endeth the lesson.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with the broadcast laying out the stark differences between the parties and their priorities. Democracy Now! looked specifically at the child tax credit and how the U.S. may be catching up to standard practices of more civilized countries. The Tom Hartman program predicted the end of the Reagan era. The broadcast listed many of the policies laid out in the rescue plan. Off-kilter discussed child care investment and health care premium support. Democracy Now! also looked at the child tax credits with an eye toward the end of the age of austerity. The majority report explained the stickiness of good policies that help people and the change in political philosophy that this law signals. Not to paint too rosy of a picture, the Zero Hour then spoke with Richard Wolfe about the insufficiency of the rescue plan in the face of the problems we have, and un the Republic laid out some more ideas of fundamental changes we need to make before we get tired of patting ourselves on the back and move on. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Pitchfork Economics explaining in a wonderfully wonky way why this rescue plan is extremely unlikely to cause any problems with inflation, and the Zero Hour spoke more with Richard Wolf, this time about the rescue plan's expansion of the Affordable Care Act and the absurdity of not having universal health coverage. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you want to make the effort but to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com/support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information every request is granted no questions asked and now we will hear from you but a quick note on these messages i have a couple of these voicemails that came in way back in november early november about child tax credits that I never ended up finding a time to play during the show, but I think they fit as responses to today's episode, so we're going to hear them now.
12: Hey, Jay, how you doing? I just wanted to share some thoughts I was having after I heard the uh, segment from uh, a week ago about... Uh, the tragic cost of American child poverty from the majority report. And they were talking about the uh, beneficial impact of universal child benefits. Uh, anyway, it made me think about the political feasibility of giving $5,000 a year to everyone under 18 in this nation, as they discussed on the show. And then I remembered that we already do that, or rather kind of something similar. For middle and upper class families, you know, if you make less than uh, $400,000 a year and you pay uh, a certain amount in taxes, you are, of course, eligible for your $2,000 reduction in your income uh, called the child tax credit, also known as claiming someone as a dependent. Anyway, I just thought it was... Uh, good example of why we need to stop thinking of tax rebates as different than other government programs or the benefit of the universal program in this case because tax rebates are really just means tested programs in disguise the government already agrees based on their child tax credit program that people who have kids need more cash on hand to spend on them that provides them with better outcomes in life in the long term and that's worth it to us like as a society also in the long term that people have better benefits like when they become adults so we just need to make sure that you know the benefits of that extra cash on hand can go to everyone and you know isn't just for people who meet certain tax requirements
13: jay in episode 1377 Building a solidarity economy, speakers promoted payments to families with children. As a progressive, I'm sympathetic with parents struggling to afford to raise their young children. But the government giving money to these families is the wrong approach. Paying people to raise children subsidizes population growth. But overpopulation is one of our biggest problems. Right now, to feed a growing population, we are cutting down tropical rainforest in the Amazon, Indonesia, and other forested areas critical to our survival. We are overfishing the oceans. We are wiping out species at a rate that, over the next several decades, will kill off all species on Earth. As a human, I don't want to be on that target list. Rather than direct payments to parents to provide childcare, we can address this problem a lot better by increasing the minimum wage enough for each person to afford a child. For example, in my area of Oregon, The living wage for a single parent with a child is about $22.25 per hour, according to the MIT Living Wage Calculator. The minimum wage here in Metro Portland is $13.25 per hour, so it is virtually impossible to raise a child on the minimum wage in this area. If you are making minimum wage, having a child plunges you deep into poverty. This is the actual problem parents face. Wages are too low for many people to afford children. Instead of patching up the problem with various subsidies, we should eliminate it by increasing wages. And this demands we ask why it is so expensive to raise a child. Overall, the cost of things is related to how much competition there is for those things. With nearly 8 billion humans competing for resources, those resources are now very expensive. Not just that, but they are bound to become more expensive because the United States has been in a privileged position to acquire and consume resources. That's the legacy of winning the Second World War. But that is a position we can't count on to subsidize our consumption into the indefinite future. Progressives should support policies that don't promote additional population growth. But the cost of raising a child is a serious issue for millions of Americans. The best way to address that problem is to raise the minimum wage and support policies that encourage domestic production of products. Then each person will have a real choice, whether to have a child or... Free from worry about whether they can afford that child. Thank you, Jay, for your hard work and good luck on Best of the Left. I look forward to more episodes.
0: Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestoftheleft.com. In quick response to Scott, the first voicemail we heard who discussed the need for universal benefits for people even if they don't have kids, it sounded like Off Kilter was exploring that a bit with earned income tax credits for people without children. And that was part of this rescue package. So I would be interested to hear either his thoughts or anyone else's, of course, on that. But Rich, in the second message, uh, he was definitely going against the grain by bringing up the dreaded topic of population. And I think that this is a good opportunity to refresh ourselves just on fundamental aspects of government regulation, taxation, Subsidization. So the classic argument goes this way, and this is just good for everyone to know. In short, the argument goes, you should tax the things you want less of, not tax the things you want more of, and subsidize the things you want a lot more of. And it makes a certain amount of sense right there on the surface, but it's not an amazing rule of thumb because it has lots of exceptions to it. And it's not just that we don't follow the rule from a progressive perspective, like how we subsidize fossil fuel production, but it can also go awry in other ways. For instance, if we think that overconsumption and consumerism is bad and wages are good, which they both are, then some would argue that we shouldn't tax wages But we should tax consumption. And that makes a certain amount of sense, again, for a second, until you realize that in practice, that would be giving a huge tax break to the wealthy and put a huge tax hike on those who spend a higher percentage of their earnings on basic consumption of necessities. So like I said, taxing what you don't want and subsidizing what you do want is a reasonable starting point when discussing the values of a society and what we want and what we don't want. But the devil is always in the details, like in the case of what Rich is bringing up. On one hand, it's good to support people in poverty, and on the other, we don't want to create a perverse incentives that drives overpopulation. So to start, let's mention the myth aspect of this. I just found this from Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, one of our most trusted sources, in an article titled Five Media Myths About Welfare. And it says, Repeated studies show no correlation between benefit levels and women's choice to have children. States providing relatively higher benefits do not show higher birth rates among recipients. In any case, welfare allowances are far too low to serve as any kind of incentive. The average family receiving benefits has 1.9 children, about the same as the national average." So, it's been a long-running myth in the U.S. that child welfare programs encourage poor women to have more kids. And, to boot, that is a deeply racist and classist dog-whistle argument That people use when arguing against government spending and trying to get people to think, well, we're only supporting poor black women who shouldn't be having more kids anyway. But the key to that myth mentioned in that article is that the benefits are too low to serve as an incentive. So it is conceivable that if incentives were high enough, then it could potentially influence the birth rate. To take an absurd example to prove the point, if the government gave you a million dollars for each child you had, you would probably genuinely consider having more kids because of the incentives. So there's a line somewhere that begins to create that incentive, but by and large, the U.S. has not hit that line nor have we really come anywhere near it. Now, in in some European countries, it has been a mixed bag, and for reasons that go beyond welfare policy, many European countries have robust social safety nets, but still maintain relatively low birth rates. But on the other hand, in Norway, birth rates are apparently higher than the rest of Europe, but that doesn't seem to be explained entirely by policies alone— And apparently there's a large cultural aspect to it as well. There's like a higher percentage of people in Norway that attach having kids to the ability to live the good life, like having kids as a necessary part of having a good life. So in short, it's complicated. But while we're at it, let's look at other aspects of child welfare policy because I don't think it's good to just compare direct payments or tax credits versus higher wages. As the caller was doing, a healthy child welfare system would include many, many interrelated policies like mandatory maternity and paternity leave and childcare support and universal health coverage for everyone, including kids, obviously, universal high-quality schooling, high-quality school lunch programs, and so on and so on. So in one framing, when thinking about population levels, one could see all of these things as subsidizing and encouraging population growth, and you could therefore be against those things. But we would want all of those things to be in place for the sake of a healthy society, even in a world in which we have sustainable population and manageable birth rates. So it just seems more complicated to me. Than being in favor of higher wages rather than child welfare support, you know, a system that appears to have perverse incentives for unsustainable population growth may ultimately have less of that worrisome impact than many would fear, but would also likely produce much healthier, happier, and more economically stable families. Whereas. An alternative system that attempts to avoid incentivizing higher birth rates may have minimal impact on that specific desired metric, but then leave gaping holes in our welfare system by pushing off all of the responsibility onto the individuals with with the carrot of, well, we're going to have wages be higher so that you can take care of yourselves instead of treating the support of child-raising parents. As the social responsibility that it rightfully should be. But again, it's complicated, and I I would love to hear anyone else's thoughts on this. Like Rich, I am also in favor of lower birth rates for environmental reasons, but how to get there always seems to be a topic fraught, first of all, with misinformation on one hand. And, and also many, many unintended consequences on the other. So keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or emailing me to j at Bestofleft.com if you have any thoughts on this. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio Ben, Dan, and Ken for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, and so on. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com/support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. And now everyone can earn rewards and support the show just by telling everyone you know about it using our referralmatic program at bestofleft.com/refer.